0: Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl, thewanderingowl.com. Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts Sarenth Odinson and James Stovall talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Won't you come and join us around grandfather fire?
1: Spirits of the Underworld, you come, you come. What is the mask that you wear today? What do you show us? She, he, they, Waskar. Spirit of the Underworld, reflect back to us. Show us the shadows that we hide. Help us with the voice that we need to bring. Help us to honor and speak of our ancestors and bring them forth from the underworld. The days grow shorter. The night grows longer. And soon it will be the time of honoring those who have passed before us. Waskar, help us find the words. Waskar, help us find the costumes. Waskar, help us dance the dances so we can honor those ancestors and hear their voices as they hear ours welcome everybody to another episode of around grandfather fire you're listening to episode number seven i am james stovall and joined as always by my good friend and co-host Sarinth Odenson. how's it going tonight Sarinth? i'm doing all right how are you Ah, we're all tired here. Tired is the word of the day, right? It is. It is.
2: <laughs> lots hey, of overtime lots of work. Yeah, right.
1: I know. I got to tell you, brother, that we've been getting a lot of really good feedback on our last couple of shows. Everybody's been uh, uh, really digging the stuff that we've been talking about. They like the kind of open format as we're going back and forth. And uh, even our, our insight into our personal practices with the last show, they were really happy with. There was a lot of good feedback from that.
2: Yeah, I was actually kind of uh, surprised at how good the feedback's been. I mean, we're a relatively young show at this this time around.
1: Yeah, exactly, and getting some some uh, interesting guests lined up and all kinds of fun stuff happening. So it makes me really happy. Heck yeah, it feels
2: good that uh, people, even out of our little rambles, you know, that they're getting good solid work out of the, uh, the even the rambles between the two of us.
1: Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> we, we are good at rambling. We have that talent. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah, um, I'm really excited. I I, uh, I know we've been talking about a couple of the shows coming up, and this is one that I've been mm-hmm. looking forward to tonight, everybody uh, um, bringing the interview with Sanyan tonight. And this is a great one because uh, the reason I'm excited about it is the uh, this really tests our new open format because uh, people who like this show... You're going to get a lot to chew on tonight. We've got a good, like, just slightly over two-hour interview. So, so uh, strap in and make sure you have a beverage handy because this is going to be a nice long podcast for you.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And and we go all over the place. So, <laughs> fair warning.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. It was great too because we covered mm-hmm. uh, uh, cover a little bit of everything as you guys will hear. And and as keeping keeping themes with this show, we cover everything from spirituality to science fiction in this interview. So that was a lot of fun.
2: Yep. And just a quick heads up for folks who don't know, Sanyan is a polytheist and he is the writer of many books on, on especially Dionysus and the toys of Dionysus, which are a group of spirits that uh, have initiation path in different uh, Dionysian groups, including the, uh, underground and the starry bull and the starry bear traditions. So I'm really, really pleased we actually got to land such a long interview and got to take so much of his time up.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. I really like it. Anything else you want to talk about real quick before we uh, head off to interview land?
2: If you guys have more questions of us or if you ever want us to follow up with guests with follow-up questions... So we can bring them back on and pick their brains. Please let us know because that gives us more things to chew on with them. So if there's something that you heard one guest mention you really want us to cover it in depth, let us know that so that we can say, "Hey, so we had an audience member who wanted you to go into X or Y. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about that." Yeah, exactly. So.
1: Yep, and we can. Uh, uh, you can always leave us a voicemail feedback through the the Anchor app. And it's the, our home base is on anchor.fm but you can also download our show from many podcast platforms as you know but the, the anchor app at least allows you to give a voicemail feedback or you can send me an email uh, jim at com. you can catch me on twitter at uh, james at the owl I'm on instagram as wanderingwhitehat and Sarenth. you are at
2: I'm uh, Sarenth at gmail.com s-a-r-e-n-t-h and I'm also at Sarenth on Twitter, and I'm on Instagram now. I don't have a huge presence there. I'm a relatively new adopter. I am S-A-R-E-N-T-H, Sarinth and Odinson, uh, all in one word, lowercase. So come and meet me there. I've just started to get a, myself around and acclimated to that environment.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you'll like Instagram. It's actually becoming one of my favorite uh, platforms because there's not a lot of reshares, Um you know, a lot of it is just original posts, and it's from people's lives. Like, if you look at my feed, uh, you're gonna get a lot of cat pics, but you get the covers of the comic books that I'm reading currently. You're gonna get uh, if I if I do a big ritual setup, who knows what's gonna be on there? And just try to try to keep the variety up. And it's just it's insights into people's lives, and I really like that because um, it seems like on so much social media we're losing the personal connections and. And this just being photos with comments—I don't know—it just seems a lot more of a view into people's lives.
2: Oh, excellent! Because that's uh, that's honestly a part of why I originally got into Tumblr, besides the fact that my stuff was being reblogged there. Like right. uh, one of the one of the first places I started um, looking at on Tumblr was Fuck Yeah Altars, which was hmm. a, an entire group which was nothing but altar pictures.
1: Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so yeah. you know, Instagram, I, I, I find it the same way. I, it's just a lot of insight into people's lives and what's going on with them. You see pictures of their kids and their houses and everything else. And like I said, I I've run across the occasional like political meme. Somebody has gone to the hassle of downloading and resharing or whatever. But they they are so much more rare on Instagram. It, it's been a lot more enjoyable experience.
2: That's definitely. Uh... Part of what I found interesting with this is it's kind of to me it's like a combination of Insta like Instagram is like a combination of Pinterest and what Tumblr used to be for me.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. a, it's
2: a whole new format, and I'm starting just starting to get back into uh, posting things. So right. I really appreciate you kind of bringing me into that. Yeah, I was, I was real skeptical at first. Like, oh, okay, this is just another social media fad thing. Okay. Right.
1: Well, I mean, and, you know, and, and it, it's bought out, it's been bought out by Facebook. So there's all, you know, you do see certain amounts of ads and that sort of thing, but I don't know. It's just a different environment. I enjoy a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, um, and for anybody that's interested as well, I want to mention that, uh we're still waiting for the official announcement of what classes of ours have been accepted, but Sareth and I are both expecting to be at convocation here in February, so if you want to start making your plans to, sh- to, to meet us there, who knows what rituals or classes we're going to be leading, and uh, I know for me personally, Sareth is working god-awful amounts of hours, but I'm still out and about being able to do teaching, and that if you're in the mid-Michigan area, if you're somewhere within within a decent amount of driving distance, you can contact me. I am also doing fire ceremonies for people, a really powerful tool of transformation. And so um, get hold of me and I will, you know, we'll, we'll figure out how much uh, is going to cost me for expense-wise to drive to you and what sort of gifting we We can exchange with each other, but I will drive right to your house with my trusty fire bowl and we'll have a fire right there. So it's kind of a powerful thing. I want to mention that here. I don't think I've mentioned that before.
2: Yeah. And I mean, if anybody has ever been to one of his ceremonies, you'll know that uh, Jim not only does good work, but he does thorough work. So uh, he's, he's one of these practitioners who won't leave you hanging afterwards. So it's, it's not just a one and done thing. It's, I think that's something that you would uniquely bring to the table with a lot of your rituals and the ceremonies is that there is that aspect of, okay, so you've done the ritual, now what?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. I, I think both of us try to do that a lot. We don't, the one and done rituals don't end up really working for a lot of people. And that's an entire show that we could get into on why that is.
2: Oh, yeah. That sounds like a great show idea. Sounds like a. We'll <laughs>
1: add it to the future topics list, I think. so. All right. I think right, that well, about covers everything for me. So, unless there's anything yep. else for you, why don't you go ahead and uh, give one more introduction to our guest tonight?
2: So, this is uh, Sanyan. He is a, a polytheist of the Starry Bull, uh, Starry Bear traditions, uh, formerly the Starry uh, Bear. Or, Mm, I goofed that up, sorry. It's formerly of the Starry Bull. Uh, he is formerly of the Buck Underground. He is a, a prolific author and has written uh, books of poetry and spirituality, including Strange Spirits, going over diverse topics uh, on Dionysus and his retinue.
1: Fantastic. And we'll turn you over to that interview with Sanyan. Sanyan, welcome to our new show around grandfather fire. How are you doing?
3: Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've been looking forward to it uh when since we switched over formats from the Jaguar and the Owl, we were we were we had you on the short list for guests, so we're glad to have you. Oh, thank you. Now, real quick before we get too far into questions or or the conversation, I I like to get it kind of knocked out real quick. Tell people where they can find you online for the various things that you write and do.
3: Um, I'm pretty much only on my blog at thehouseofvines.com and yeah, you can get my books there. I blog very infrequently but uh, when I do, it's there.
1: (laughs) When you do, it makes an impact. That's what happens.
3: (laughs) (laughs) i don't know about
1: that oh but. i don't know i from my end i don't know what Sarah thought you feel but i feel like whenever a new post goes up all of a sudden it's like the talk of the blogosphere for a while so
2: <laughs> well between you and glena i tend to end up with more homework than not when you folks tend to blog about things so <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah yeah i used to have a much bigger following when i would uh touch on controversial stuff down I'm just, uh, you know, poetry and whatever obscure interests I'm studying at that time. Hmm.
2: So part of the reason we had John was besides you guys being on the short list for, for guests we wanted to have on, um, you know, we, we have myself and Jim are, are very much steeped in the more Northern perspective. Jim's in the, um, definitely in the, the peruvian side of things uh i think specifically if uh, memory serves correct um and so what i wanted to kind of get was your perspective on on things like uh, your individual projects that you'd like to talk about um what building polytheist homes like what bargaining is like maybe talk about your experiences working on that um and what uh your work with dionysus and revelation work in polytheist religions like so we can we can cover that scatter shot, or we can ca- cover that one at a time
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah that sounds like some good topics it's gonna be a good night
2: <laughs> so um well how about we how about we give the the listeners a like, especially for the newbies uh, a brief history of of your work with polytheism oh
3: um or maybe not so brief, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's like, brief.
1: Yeah. how do we do it's brief <laughs>
3: I've been doing this for, like, 20, almost 30 years at this point, and, um, early on, I, I got caught up by Dionysus, and, you know, he's been the primary focus for all of my work, and, um, through him, I got involved in the Hellenic polytheist movement, and, um, then I briefly branched out into Greco-Egyptian polytheism, and, um, then I got into, um, you know, southern Italian-focused stuff, and now I'm doing this weird intersection of Greek and Norse. And all of it, in one way or another, is related to Dionysus, so he travels quite a bit. And I set up all of these networks with other deities and all these intersecting traditions, and that's kind of been my thing. And then, you know, I was briefly involved with the Pan-Polytheist movement for a number of years and um, organized a couple conferences and uh, some gatherings and retreats and stuff and founded several groups and all that good stuff.
2: So, how, uh, if you don't mind talking about it, how did Dionysus originally um, come to you or did you come to him? How did, how did that shake out?
3: Well, they actually first came to me when I was very, very young, like three or four, and through, you know, like could see of dreams and visions and stuff. And, and I had no clue at the time who he was. Obviously, he's only three or four, you know, so I'm just like, oh, this interesting guy with all these plants and animals and stuff surrounding him. And so then, like in my teens, I started. Um, you know, looking through all these different religions and philosophies and stuff to find, you know, stuff that reminded me of him, and and then eventually I, I found my way to Dionysus, and once I connected that it was him, and he confirmed it, um, he just kind of took over as my primary
1: deity,
2: <clears throat> as he's wont to
3: do.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. What was that process like, if I can, because I know there's a lot of people out there that are interested in, in polytheism and spirituality, um, detail a little bit. How did you kind of do that sorting out process to figure out this was something that was real as opposed to uh, uh, just something that, that maybe your, your memories or your imagination dragged out? Because I think a lot of people question that.
3: Oh, yeah, no, definitely. And...
1: And, like, at the time, I had,
3: like, nothing to go on except these, you know, poorly remembered encounters from my childhood. And, yes, you know, so I did a bunch of research, and I did some ritual stuff, and, you know, and then I, I found several deities, like, you know, Odin and Frere and the Green Man and Jesus and a couple others that kind of, like, on paper... Sounded okay, but then, you know, anytime I would try to reach out to them, I'd I'd, I'd get rebuffed, and you know, and or they didn't quite fit, and uh, you know, so it was this process of trial and error, and, you know, eventually I started uh, getting these breadcrumbs from Dionysus, and all these little pieces that I'd fit, find, would fit together, and fit together much better than any of the others, and then eventually he confirmed it, so. <clears throat> Yeah, it was a couple of years of some serious searching and struggle.
2: So, does um, mm. a lot of your work come out of of reconstructionism, or is it kind of like direct experiential? Is it a, is it a mix of direct experience and research? Because, um, I mean, just reading your blog in general, I get this sincere feeling like there's a lot of breadcrumbs that you're finding through history mm. to him. Mm-hmm. That that inform your modern practice.
3: I definitely wouldn't say it's um, reconstructionist. I mean, that's a fine methodology for you know for certain things, and I suppose in some ways I do employ some of those methods, but mm-hmm. um, I tend to do it like backwards. You know, like um, I, I get these weird experiences you know through dreams and visionary stuff and um ecstatic communications and then i like try to piece it together and you know usually there's little you know bits of information that i uncover and so that gives me more of the story and you know it, I, I i'm a pretty good researcher so you know I, that's kind of why it looks like reconstructionism but um I'm not really interested in reconstructing what the ancients did like that for me mm-hmm. is just the starting point. That's the model. And I tend to think that, you know, our, our ancestors were much wiser on a number of things than we are, but, you know, that, that, that doesn't mean that they have everything figured out. And sometimes our situations are different enough that, you know, you got to go with what's in your environment and, you know what's happening today and and that should be the primary thing is like this should be a living faith interacting with these gods and spirits and and holding to these traditions that you know don't stop at some arbitrary point in time but continue mm-hmm. to unfold and that's one of the things that really interests me is the sort of post-classical period both with greek stuff and with um the norse stuff you know
2: yeah, because on your on your blog right now, there's um, your your latest post, "The Rose of Mysterious Union." You're mm-hmm. uh, citing Carl Michael Bellman um, and the uh, uh,
3: various authors, uh, Simon Hailing, the, the, the Danish guy from I think with the 18th century or something. You know, like yeah. That.
1: And, That's and that was really
3: neat because that was like a total confirmation of one little theory that I had been you know tracing and stuff, and and so this guy had apparently latched onto that too Hmm. and that's neat to find confirmation for your you know upgs and stuff which i think if you dig deep enough you can
1: it does make a lot of sense because uh culturally we're not stuck in a bottle anymore especially with all the with the internet and everything at our disposal science isn't stuck in a bottle all these things are changing Uh so we can we can build i mean certainly look at the past as reference points and confirmations but it doesn't you're right it doesn't seem like these things can be stuck in a static way
2: yeah so taking off from that one of the things that really interests me in the work that you did with the Starry Bull and and various other groups and the uh, the Bakke Underground and others is that you have this concept of Sancta that Mm -hmm. evolves into the modern period where you take both ancient and modern peoples and, and um, you, you recognize them as sacred beings.
3: Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, like uh, in Greek religion, you've got the heroes and heroines, and then you got other um, sort of holy men and deified figures, and you know, like emperor cult and all of that. So, you know, it's it's more like there's a continuum from you know baseline human on up to the divinities and and you know spirits and gods and stuff and and so humans can fill in this niche sort of in between there and um and in some ways they're easier to interact with than gods at least i think most people tend to find it that way because they still have this touch of humanity about them and um And some of them can be really, really interesting, especially the ones that, like, carry our gods, you know, because then you are getting those deities reflected through this human lens. And as, for instance, with, like, Jim Morrison, or... <clears throat> yeah, and it's, it's really interesting when, um, you know, these figures, like, show up in ritual and stuff, because it's like... You know, everybody is talking about them and writing about them, and you know, I've actually met them in a ritual, and, and sometimes they're very different than hmm. you know the impression you might have of these historical figures, and you know, and sometimes they are really not impressed with modern society. Like uh, um, a number of years back, I was doing a lot of work with the Ptolemaic dynasty, the uh, Greek rulers of Egypt. And um yeah, I would carry them and um one of them really liked dancing and music and stuff. And um so one night I decided to take him out to a club and he was really, really not impressed with our modern ideas <laughs> uh, the and and he thought the stuff they were playing was like just noise and he was he did not stick around. <laughs> you kids <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: so so can I ask does that mean that if someone is trying to kind of discover their way or or build a relationship with a god, just like sometimes when we're talking about ancestor work that the, the ancestors get it, there's because they were human at one point in time that mm-hmm. sometimes your best approach might be actually like reaching out to some of the ancient uh, people that practice those religions, the ancient priests or philosophers or whatever, that, that might be a good solid step for people that are, that are seeking. Oh yeah,
3: absolutely. And then even more recent people like poets and, you know, other devotees of these gods in more modern times. And, and also though the, you know, most deities have like this retinue of associated um, spirits and, Sometimes ancestors and sometimes even other gods are in there, trade. and you know if you're having trouble connecting with the deity directly, you can sometimes go through their retinue as like an intermediary, and that can hmm. help you.
1: That's fascinating, actually, yeah I, you know other than some of the stuff that you're writing and and, and Galena and a few others that uh, you just don't see that referenced very many places, but that's a it, it's a fascinating approach that probably people could make a lot more use of.
3: Oh, yeah. No, and this is actually, like, a really big part of Neoplatonism, because they believe that the, um, the gods were too far removed from us, mm-hmm. and so we never actually had any interactions with the gods. What we had interactions were with the daemons, the spirits associated with them. I don't necessarily believe that, but I do think they were on to some, you know, good ideas with that, and, and so one you know, could adapt that for, you know, modern practice.
2: Oh, excellent. Okay, um, so with Dionysus, can you go over like some of the retinue and some of the gods and such associated with him, so people get uh, a clearer idea? Because, I mean, I'm, I, I have knowledge. You have knowledge. Jim has knowledge. But I'm I'm approaching this from the the listeners who have no clue about Dionysus, and kind of where they might get yeah. to start.
3: Um, one of the big things in his cult was. Um... You know, he he granted immortality and a um, sort of a blessed existence to his initiates and his mysteries, and therefore their fate after death was very different than the average dead who went to, you know, sort of the gloomy realm of Hades. Um, His initiates, you know, continued to have this eternal feast, and they would, you know, dance and worship and have sex and drink and feast and hunt and all of this stuff. And, you know, so obviously that was a big part of the appeal. And um, so there's that level of it. And then he's also got, you know, the nymphs and satyrs and various land spirits. And, you know, then he's got other deities such as, you know, like Hermes and um, you know, Pan and um, various others, and then he's also got um, a group um, called the Harlequinade, which um, become these figures in Italian comedy and drama, but started off in um, these very sort of primitive um, plays that were, you know, originated out of Dionysian worship, and then these figures like continue through you know, um, Roman and farce and then you know, the Italian comedy and then into, um, you know, modern English and French theater and stuff like that. So it's really fascinating to like trace this whole separate history of those figures. And they're basically, you know, like scary clowns. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then um, there's a group of spirits associated with Dionysus called the Toys of Dionysus. That are involved in initiatory stuff, and um, and they're really fascinating to work with. And um, I, I kind of put together the core material for working with them because no one in modern times had been doing doing anything with them. And so I, I put together all this material and taught a bunch of classes, and now like all these people are, you know, having experiences with them and working with them. And that's really cool to see that take off. So I kind of relate to the toys
2: um, in a similar fashion to the runes, each each toy. Oh, yeah, no, they're very similar to the runes. Mm-hmm. I've only worked with a couple of them, but even that, that small amount of getting my head kicked around with, say, Astrologos. If they yeah. hope I'm saying that right. Uh, my Greek is not uh, <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the, the uh, Sphera and Astrologoi and all that, I, I uh, just the small amount of work I do. Um, a fair warning to any listeners who start looking for the toys or have the to- or <laughs> are in the toys uh, position of having them looking for you. Uh, good luck. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, no, they're,
3: they're pretty interesting. And you know, like their names are basically what they are. You know, like Svera is a sphere, a ball. Um, Stragoloy is um, knuckle bones. And there's a mirror and there's a, a, a jointed doll. And, a tuft of wool and and each one have deep symbolic associations and you know sort of together represent this whole cosmology and and they take you through this whole initiatory process and basically strip you apart and build you back up and you know it's super fun working with them
2: yeah sounds sounds definitely familiar (laughs)
3: Yeah. yeah and if you have like any internal blocks or you know deep Issues. They will all come to the surface.
2: <clears throat> Oof. So it's an initiatory journey, a cosmological one, all kind of wrapped up in a ten ten toys. I think it is.
3: Yep. Ten. And there were um, different systems reported with you know different numbers of them, and you know, um, but these are the ones that I had worked with during my own initiatory process, and so these are the ones that I've develop the system around but mm-hmm. maybe others will branch off to some of the other toys and that'll be interesting I like the sort of organic evolution of traditions
2: yeah so that's actually something I was curious to talk with you about um, about the organic evolution of polytheist traditions um, so one of the things that I, I hammer on quite a bit both in my own kindred and with conversations with the polytheists online is developing regional cultists mhm um, can you talk a bit about how your regional cultist has developed given the different areas you've lived in
3: mm, mm-hmm. yeah you know like Dionysus I'm a total vagabond and, you know I've wandered all over the country and um, and each place is very very different both with the type of you know land spirits that they have and the personalities of those spirits and you know the, the, the nature of the environment and all of this stuff and and how the gods when they manifest you know what they manifest through depends on what's around locally you know and um, that was always a big part of traditional polytheisms and something that's continued through the modern but um, unfortunately I think too many people tend to have this sort of bullfinch picture of the gods you know and, and tend to You know, take this very sort of abstract view of them, and um, as opposed to actually connecting with the face of the god that's present for them. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, that Um, wasn't historically done either, right?
3: Because what's that?
2: uh, I'm sorry, that wasn't historically (laughs) done either, right? Because I mean, you have uh, Zeus and Dionysus of these different regions, uh, (laughs) or Apollo Lycaeus, for instance.
3: Um there was there's both actually in antiquity because um
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know
3: like the, the works of Homer and Hesiod kind of um formed this sort of canon of Greek mythology and then you know a lot of traditions tried to bend themselves to that but also kept a uh, distinctive local flavor and and yeah each each region would have its own different zeus and you know they would have different epithets and and sometimes different myths and and rituals and stuff associated with them and you know what area or what you know aspect of the god you were working with depended on if you were you know going through that very localized tradition if you were going through the sort of pan-hellenic tradition or and these could all like sort of coexist
1: Sarenth, aren't you aren't you finding that that sort of exists for your practices even now? I know it certainly does for <laughs> mine because like with my traditions we're studying mostly we're talking mostly about South America, the Keru, uh high up in the mountains of the Andes, but as those traditions are coming through me here in the the great lakes area um the the apu the the sacred spirits that I'm interacting with much more are lakes than mountains, and it is a different tradition even though it's the same tradition i aren't you finding that as well in your practice
2: i am i am um <clears throat> i think that there's different ways we interact with the gods i mean a classic example would be like go to a great lake here and and call it a njord you're going to get a different feel and probably a different kind of njord than somebody who goes to the ocean mm-hmm, i mean definitely
3: or, you know, the Pacific Ocean versus the Atlantic Ocean.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, even here in the Great Lakes region, all five of the different lakes have a different feel to them. If you recall the same spirit at all five different lakes, you're going to get five different respondents, markedly different responses.
2: mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I tend to, the Great Lakes, I tend to gloss and understand them as goddesses, as undines. Um, from the Northern tradition perspective, because they're all essentially, they have all the qualities of oceans except for having salt, Um, (laughs) you know, and and the interactions I've had with, with Lake Superior remind me a lot of Kolga from uh, the Northern tradition. And so, um, but it's not, (laughs) right, right, right. That's the fascinating thing about local cultists is that, you're going to, you could even hook into echoes of this or that god, but it's definitely going it can, to, it can definitely be a different spirit or a different mm-hmm. aspect of that bigger god.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, then you get into syncretism where, you know, two or more deities can sort of blend together and, yeah, you know, then that gives it this fascinating depth and complexity.
2: <clears throat> yeah, Hermanubis has always been one of those that's fascinated me since I first heard about him. Shortly, oh, yeah. after, shortly after becoming his his and I found out this there was this composite syncretic god, and I was like, "What's this?" <laughs> <laughs> so, does yeah. Dionysus do a lot of that in terms of? Oh, your yeah,
3: yeah. He, he's the god of masks, so he's like the hyper syncretic deity. Like in my book, ecstatic, I've got like three pages of just a list of deities that he's been syncretized with. And I could probably expand that another four or five pages. It's just the research I've done since then. It's...
2: Holy crap.
3: Yeah. The kind of, reminds God of Odin as has team. been consumed into Dionysus at some point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, hmm. can you give us like examples of some of the syncretism that, that's gone on with Dionysus?
3: Um, let's see. Probably the biggest one was Osiris. And um and that one went on for you know a number of centuries um even before the Greeks um, took over Egypt um, because their myths are very very similar and mm-hmm. you know their functions and stuff are so similar. their personalities however, couldn't be more different, which is why I don't ultimately believe that Dionysus and Cyrus, you know however much mm-hmm. they may let borrow and you know fill similar mm-hmm. niches they their personalities are just completely different
2: yeah I always got this kind of a fatherly grandfatherly feel off of Osiris whereas Dionysus certainly doesn't feel that way to me
3: no no yes. and, and, and there can be uh, you know Dionysus that's very sort of cold and aloof and you know, all of that but even there there's this sort of undercurrent of heat that you just don't really get with Osiris
1: well, senior, can I ask i, I... I asked this before of, of of another guest, and so how do we square or uh, define uh, these synchronized deities versus like a more Wiccan concept that all gods are one god? How do we differentiate, or or what what overlap is there in those terms? How do you square all that up in your in your mind?
3: Um, because there's no there's no loss with our thing um you know like you can have hermes and anubis and then they fuse together into hermenubis now yeah you know, no time do hermes and anubis lose their distinct individual identity they've just created this third personality that is the fusion of them
1: mm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so
3: i think it's um comes down to irreducibles
1: that that's a great way of defining it that i hadn't really thought of before but that uh... I do like that quite a bit. It, it strikes me that it's uh, two instruments striking the same note, and the note itself that is shared between the two of them is its own third property. But it doesn't take away from either of the two instruments.
3: Yeah, no, I like that. And, and you see that even back in Homer, where um, Hera comes to Aphrodite and asks to borrow her girdle, and her girdle is this like magical thing that um, you know is alluring and and all of this, so basically that's Hera functioning with the powers of Aphrodite, but at no point does she, you know. and I think there's also different types of syncretism, and there are some where it's, you know, so-and-so is actually so-and-so, but most of them tend to be just borrowing attributes and identities and
1: stuff. No, that's, a, that's a great insight. I'm glad I asked that question, because that's a different understanding for me that I hadn't <laughs> quite been able to, to to get before, so I appreciate that.
3: Yeah, Totally. This is why we got to talk, you know. Uh, we have all these conversations online, but we're not really talking to each other. And, you know, just when we sit down and actually have a you know, serious conversation, that's when we get to the real meat and bones of
1: polytheism oh yeah that's why i love the whole i love these podcasts and i love sitting across the 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 table from somebody or as the title of the podcast uh, with us at a sacred fire with somebody because we have all these different conversations that we all come away richer for it's really fantastic
2: so something i picked up as you guys were talking was um the concept of borrowing attributes from other gods and as soon as you said you know Hera b- borrowing Aphrodite's girl, I immediately went to Loki borrowing Freya's falcon cloak and went,
3: Oh! Yeah, so that's a good example of that, too.
2: Like, <clears throat> we have that in the northern tradition, too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I've seen <clears throat> arguments that uh, the, the, the scene where Loki is uh, trying to make Scotty laugh is also a, a sort of a syncretic hookup into one of what was known as her cults or her um, attributes. Of the the trying to get the the frigid frost giant to laugh, and all that melting of the snow and all that. And so, do you do you, do you find that there's a lot of cosmological interplay too that happens when some of these syncretist uh, works occur? You know, um, Hera borrowing Aphrodite's girdle being one example, but um, even other gods borrowing attributes of Dionysus.
3: Oh yeah, definitely. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, like, it goes both ways, and, um, and like, Antinous is one who borrows a lot of elements from Dionysus and, you know, goes this whole other direction with it, and you know, I, think, I think that's really neat. Hmm.
1: <clears throat> hey, uh, hey there, uh, Mr. Odinson, it just occurs to me that all those different aspects of, of Grandfather there, maybe he's just ultimate at borrowing other people's shit for a while. Well, oh, yeah. you know,
2: I one of his names so. is Grimnir. Yep.
1: <laughs>
2: I'm going to borrow this. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. Preferably, you didn't even notice it was gone. I just used it for a bit. So.
3: No, and that's the thing. Like, Odin and Dionysus also have a lot in common, too, you know.
2: Well, yeah, didn't they? Uh, one of the things that you and I have talked about on and off is uh, the, the brewing of mead. Mm-hmm. So, can can you kind of dig into uh, how how he came to um, was he the originator of mead, or was he the the one who found
3: it, or? Um, that's really hard to say. Um, we know that Dionysus was associated with mead um back in like minoan Crete, before they had uh viticulture oh, wow. oh and, okay yes yeah, sounds was like really really old and um and like in one of the myths um uh, uh zeus uses mead to um get his father chronos uh, drunk so that you can castrate him and you it's know, so like, this has this whole mm-hmm. big mythology around mm-hmm. it. And, and then, like, later on, um, he also, Dionysus also continued to use meat even after wine. Because, you know, like, it comes from the bees, and bees are associated with nymphs, and he's always connected with the nymphs and stuff. And, and then, like, in Greek stuff, the um, libations to the dead tend to be um, milk, wine, honey, and oil. And so, you know, you, you often get you know, the fermented um, honey alcohol is is often used. And so, like, he continued to have these associations even after wine, but, you know, wine is definitely one of his foremost drinks. But he's also associated with beer in places that didn't have um, grapes. So he likes all alcohols, basically. (laughs)
1: <laughs> is Dionysus associated with, like, plant medicines in general? Because it makes me think about all the plant extracts and everything else and maybe that link to that immortality thing you were talking about.
3: Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of entheogens, like, there's um, this one statue that has um, a poppy crown, Dionysus, in, like, southern Italy, which is very similar to the Cretan poppy goddess that you see. And and there's, you know, some association with... Um, uh, marijuana in uh, Thrace and Scythia, with Dionysus and, and this whole group of um, priests called the Kaptanbati, who are walkers in smoke, and they would um, do these ecstatic rituals where they would like burn the the marijuana and then like ingest the smoke, sort of in a sauna like thing, and um, yeah, and and, hmm. and so he, he's basically the god of all plants and flowers and stuff like that. So he's got this even above and beyond connection with all plant and nature stuff.
2: So. See, and, and it's it's funny how this conversation's been building, because now I'm thinking of the associations you've been building with him in your blog and, and various conversations with Uther. And mm-hmm. the meat conversation we just had, I was like, oh, okay, that's the link. That's the link to Freya. That makes total mm-hmm. sense, because I, I worship her, and our kindred worships her as a goddess of bees. Yeah. Like, ah,
3: click gotcha (laughs) definitely yeah and then like he and odin you know they've got the the ecstatic thing going they've got the mask thing they've got like uh transvestitism and you know like just tons of all these associations and, and but again personalities are so different you would never mistake the one for the other so
2: they might borrow each other's clothes, but they're definitely uh, not the same suit, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, that's, that's that's a fascinating thing for polytheism for me, is that there's all these associations and relationships we can have, and they're not like a one-to-one thing. Like, you know, you can worship, um, you know, myself and Galina, for instance, we've worshipped Odin a good chunk of our lives, and we have very different relationships with him. And different. Oh different yeah
3: no i mean each god has multiple paths leading to them so you know you just pick two people at random and they're gonna have very different relationships with these deities and focus on different you know aspects and attributes and, and that's what makes polytheism so cool i think so there's never just one way
2: mm-hmm. so we've talked a bit about uh different gods and syncretism you mentioned very briefly nymphs and uh uh, dryads, I believe. Can you can you dig a little bit, especially for those who, who don't know maybe what those are? Can you dig a bit into what those are? Are they gods? Are they spirits? Are they somewhere in between?
3: Um, they are sort of in between. Um, in Greek thinking, a god properly is an immortal entity, and the nymphs are not immortal. They're very long lived; like they'll you know have thousands and thousands of years. But um, they can die, and they can't um, travel the way that, you know... It's like Zeus can be worshipped pretty much anywhere that you have access to a sky. But um, a nymph is attached to a particular tree, a particular mountain, a particular Mm -hmm. river, or, you know, lake or something like that. And, of course, if something happens to that tree or that lake or something, the, the nymph will die, so that's one of the big differences between them and gods. And, um, and they're very similar to land from other cultures, but, um, mm. in the Greek, the nymphs are only ever female. <clears throat> Whereas, you know, like with fairy, you can get uh, male and female. And who the fuck knows, you know, <laughs> they're, they're a little blurry with some things. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, yeah, nymphs are only ever female. Mm
2: yeah kind of reminds me of the the desir from uh from northern tradition in that in that fashion the Desir are just you know and they're they tend to be guardians well in, in the case of Desir, guardians of the family line but the nymphs are specifically are they are they guardians or are they spirits of
3: uh, a little bit of both okay and it's interesting because the name nymph actually means bride well yeah. hmm
2: yeah. Did not
3: know that, and there were these um, interesting mystics that would um, live in caves and tend the nymph and do all of these ecstatic rituals and stuff, and and they would um, have nympholepsy, which is basically being carried off by the nymphs. It's sort of this ecstatic thing, and um, yeah, like they would spend their whole lives, sort of like uh, you know, Christian hermits and stuff, and just tend these little sanctuaries, kind of like
2: male god spouses if you will.
3: Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's definitely hints that there was a romantic component to their relationship. So
1: I can think of worse jobs.
3: Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some suggestion that they may not have been able to leave that mm-hmm. cave. Mm-hmm. But, oh.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah, no, I that would actually make sense to the, me if you weren't you were associated with uh, that cave or that tree or the nymph of that tree or that location, then um, it would make sense that you can't leave there. That's part of your, it yeah. would be part of the contract. It would make complete sense to me. Mm-hmm. Is there an implication, do you think, that the, and granted, this is just my cultural perspective, but you know, the the whole female and male of naming things, does that imply maybe that the, the plants were seen as more masculine and the nymphs were their forever bride. Or is that more of a thing where the nymphs were, I I know in a lot of myths they were associated with being consorts to various gods. I wonder if that's where it comes from instead.
3: Yeah, no, I don't know. Um, I do know that like plants and stuff in Greek thought can be both male and female. Okay. Yeah. And, and there were also like male land spirits and stuff that were different. And, and some of those other land spirits can be both male and female, but nymphs are like a special breed. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, sometimes in modern times, people tend to equate, you know, nymphs and fairies and other land spirits and stuff. But, you know, in my experience, they're very separate.
2: Okay. So, so there, it's not a one-to-one correlation. It's definitely, this is its own thing. That's its own thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Diversity. Gosh in polytheism <laughs> um, so okay I, so this is brewing uh, kind of in the back of my brain since, since we brought it up um, where are some of the dividing lines you see between for instance nymphs, fairies, land spirits uh, how do you gloss them um, how do you understand them in, in a general polytheist context or, or specifically in your context
3: Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, well, I think this is where you go to your diviner if you have mm-hmm. questions about this. You know, like if you're encountering a spirit and you don't know what it is and what it wants and, and they're not being forthcoming, you know, you, you just go to a diviner and or, you know, a religious specialist who can give you counseling on this. And... <clears throat>
2: Yeah. okay um do you think that there's bleed over or interaction between for instance the fae and dionysus or is that kind of like some of these some of these groups just this is the other world this is our land this is your land
3: <laughs> yeah no um in dionysus's retinue in addition to all the fairies and various lands and stuff there is a I said in addition to the nymphs and the various landscapes there's also a group of fairies that he has picked up at some hmm. point. And, really? And this is really interesting because you can actually see this in the historical sources, you know, like around, um, I think, 1400 or so, you start getting people talking about fairies and stuff in association with Dionysus.
2: Oh, that's fascinating.
3: Yeah, yeah, and, and they are they are a different sort of fairy than most people encounter, like for instance, they don't have the cold iron prohibition.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. See, I this is the first I've heard of this, so I, I want you to dig into this if you could.
3: Yeah. No. Um. Yeah, I've got a bunch of a bunch of sources I've been collecting on it, and it's really quite fascinating. And um. Oh, yeah, and I don't weird. I don't know why. Like, I, I've not been able to figure out. You know, like where this came in now that i've connected dionysus with Other, you know i suspect that's probably where they came in
2: mm, the alfar
3: yeah that makes sense that makes a lot of and sense it, and it's interesting because one of my former ritual partners also dealt with fairies and dionysus and um but this was her fairies were a completely separate group of fairies so it was it was interesting to keep them you know keep track of what was going on there
2: yeah, because in my experience, the Alfar don't really have the cold iron allergy. Yeah, so and, that's what I think. Mm. That's, that's
3: why I think they came in.
2: Hmm. Oh, that's going to bake in my brain for a while now. Thanks.
3: <laughs> yep, I'll have to send you the, uh, the quotes with that.
2: Do you mind if we post them on the uh, Anchor app for people to look at? Oh, yeah, yeah. Go right ahead. Cool. Um... <clears throat> So, so you mentioned about ritual partners and things like that. That kind of brings me to the next topic I wanted to hit with you on. Um, so, how, how do you build a polytheist practice when you have all these moving parts? How do you how do you fit all these moving pieces together into cohesive, or or not cohesive, just a, a working whole? Mm-hmm. Um... Because I'm listening to you talk, and I'm just thinking, wow, the taboos alone would be kind of crazy with some of this stuff.
3: Oh, yeah, no, and especially with all the different traditions, you know. And even with Dionysus, he's got a bunch of different cults and a bunch of different traditions, and, you know, you may get taboos if you're dealing with this aspect of Dionysus that don't apply if you're dealing with this other one over here, and you know. So, yeah, I mean, it it can be really challenging in that respect. And, you know, I think you just have to... You know, um, just experiment, see what works, what doesn't. Um, Consult the lore where you can, and consult religious experts where you can, and divination, and um, and try to make sense of it as much as you're able to. And otherwise, it's trial and error.
2: So, have you run into taboos that way? Like, just straight headlong into, oh, wow, that's actually a taboo. It's not just me having a bad reaction.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I've always been kind of averse to fish, and yeah, never really liked it, and you know, but um, when I got together with Galena, she, she really liked sushi, so we went out to a restaurant, and I got violently ill, just violently oh, no! Ill. and uh, when we got home, we divined, and yeah, it turned out that it actually was not just a personal aversion, it was you know, full on taboo. And that is one of the most consistent taboos with, uh, Dionysus taboos,
2: uh really no taboos. fish. Yep. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah.
1: It's kind of fascinating for me as well in, in the sense that, uh, I have had some adverse reaction to some fish, some very specific types of fish before. And now, and mm-hmm. although, when I went in for allergy testing at various times, nothing ever showed up. Now I'm curious. I might have to note that down for a question next time I have a diviner to myself that, uh, what is that a taboo and who from? That's a fascinating thought that I wonder what other people could, uh, dig out of their lives that they hadn't thought about in that way before. That might be a possibility.
3: Mm Hmm. Yeah. And this is actually one of the things that I think, um, Tends to confuse a lot of people is like, um, unfortunately, scholars as well as lay people um, tend to view the Orphics as being vegetarians. <laughs> and they weren't. You know, um, like if you actually look at the sources and not just with the commentaries and stuff, like um, you see plenty of exceptions to that, plenty of Orphics eating meat, plenty of, you know, this and that. But the thing is, they were so scrupulous and so concerned with purity. But they have all of these you know, food taboos and stuff. So it kind of, like, as a default, especially if you're doing particular work and, and they did a lot of work with the dead, so you had to be, like, super pure with that. You know, they, they then had a bunch of restrictions on meat. But it wasn't, like, a full-time thing. And, and, and a lot of that comes from the Pythagoreans, who actually were more or less vegetarian. There are plenty of exceptions there. But a lot of the Pythagoreans wrote these works, um, attributing them to Orpheus, and, you know, so that's how that came in, is, is they're writing their own taboos and, and pawning them off on Orpheus, and then people just went like, oh, okay, so this is Orpheus. <laughs> and, you know, but you actually look at the actual Orphics on the ground, and, and they didn't have those taboos, unless a specific situation came up where they needed that kind of purity.
2: Oh, hey, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So you mentioned uh, they'd they need, need that kind of purity. So was there, like, temporary taboos, like t- taboos that they'd have to carry on for, like, a set number of days or
3: for this period? Oh, yeah, of... yeah. No, okay. Seasonal, seasonal
1: makes a lot of sense, too.
3: Yeah, and then, like, if you're doing specific work, like, um, you know, a lot, uh, the Orphics were really concerned with ancestral guilt and faults and stuff and how that would, like, pass down through the line and, you know... um a lot of the miserable stuff that's going on in your life could be attributed back to, you know, this and, and angry ancestors. And so they they came in and, you know, placated them through offerings and um, games and stuff like that and um, rituals. And, you know, while you're doing those rituals, you have to be in this extreme state of purity. And, <clears throat> you know, and then, like, once that's over, you can go back to doing whatever. But, um, yeah. And then, like, if you're doing specific festivals or if you're doing, like, temple work, you know, other taboos and stuff would come into play, so. Oh, excellent. Yeah. But there were very few that were, like, across the board your entire life.
2: Okay, so I kind of take this as a takeaway for, for polytheism in general is that, you know, yeah, this taboo might be slapped on you for a temporary period of time you know you just got to roll with it till maybe it comes off or maybe it doesn't (laughs) sometimes you just gotta deal with it
3: oh yeah yeah no no i've had stuff that started off as a temporary thing and then just kind of became a you know a long-term one too and then you see that as well and and some of this isn't just like avoiding things that will you know make you cloudy and, and stuff like that it can also be like a a way of getting closer to the holy and, you know, so there were a bunch of different reasons why they would adopt this.
1: Actually, I can see where that, that probably led to, you know, just looking at how uh, hierarchy works, I can see where that could create a lot of problems for some of the modern, we use air quotes here, reconstructionists thinking that, the taboo for someone who's rediscovering something is a mm-hmm. permanent and B applies to all the people in his group or her group. I can see where that yeah. would be, uh, one of those things that could really spin out of control quickly. If you're not careful.
3: No. And then I think that's one of the real dangers of reconstructionism is that you can find this one source that's talking about, you know, X, Y, and Z taboos. Mm-hmm. And if you don't actually look into the context of that and why that person was doing those, And, like, apply them to the whole group, like, you can just end up giving yourself, you know, unnecessary headaches and stuff. And none of these taboos were just, you know, for the hell of it. Like, it was always tied into specific work that the person was doing, specific requirements of a, you know, a temple or sanctuary, or specific requirements of a festival, or Mm -hmm. this or that.
2: So I'm glad you mentioned that, because I think one of the most misunderstood concepts in modern paganism is miasma, or terms related
3: oh, to it. Oh, yes it is. <laughs> so, but one thing people yeah, don't realize that there's different kinds of miasma, and some miasma is actually good.
2: Okay, dig into that. What, what is, is miasma?
3: <laughs> Please. Yeah. Uh, miasma means like pollution, and basically what pollution is, is being sort of like covered in the energy of a thing you know so like if you have sex you are covered in that sex energy if you um do the proper tending for the body during a burial you know and all of that you've got that death pollution on you if you go to a temple you're saturated in the energy of that god and you know and so on and so forth and you know some of these can be and it's really only a problem when you know that particular pollution is in uh, conflict with you know a different energy that you're trying to cultivate and you know it's like if you're trying to open yourself up and be clear and pure and stuff then you have to get rid of the other energies but you know, like, if you're not going into a temple and you're not doing a particular ritual or keeping a festival, it doesn't really matter, hmm. you know, beyond, yeah, you know, there are some pollutions that are just bad across the board, you know, like murder and, and stuff like that,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know. But in general, it's, it's just a matter of managing these different energies and their requirements and, you know.
1: So, so is that like the, you know the 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 saying you can't be all things to all people? The equivalent you can't be all things to all spirits. Exactly.
3: Yeah. And like if you do this, like super pure, you know, cleanse everything, and you know, blah blah blah, you're not going to be able to work with you know chthonic spirits and those kind of things because they have different requirements. And
1: I just hear, and, I just you hear a deity screaming, "I can't stand patchouli! Get the hell out of here!" <laughs> <laughs> exactly what's
3: interesting you know, and so, and, and like, there's some um, actual uses for miasma for instance one of the things that miasma does is it's kind of like this film this cloudy film that, that covers you well if you're trying to keep yourself off the radar and you know not perceived by certain spiritual entities and you know other people one of the best ways to do that is keep yourself covered in miasma Oh. Granted that can also have other problems because asthma tends to attract illness and you know, etcetera, et cetera. But you know if you're on a very transgressive path, that's kind of one of the requirements, is to be pure like that. So
2: hmm.
3: there's no one answer to any of this stuff. You gotta mm-hmm. all figure it
2: out situationally. It brings to mind the I think it's the Agori who would walk in the uh uh the charnel fields mm-hmm. and do work with the dead. Like and I think... exactly. I think what you're talking about is that there's different states of purification depending on what your, your job is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm hearing right, like the traditional things, and when we think of purity, you know, um, like currants for instance, being applied to the body or incense or what have you, being cleansing. Um, you know, with chthonic spirits, you know, uh, we have, a, we have a, a spot out in the back where we, we put all of our... Um, are offerings to Nithog and Hela in the compost heap. And that is a very, it's a, it's a place apart.
3: Um, yeah. Yeah. No. And, and for some gods that, you know, that, um, the process of breaking things down and, and like that is their energy. That is their goodness, you know?
2: So that, so there's that a, a possibility of working that. at cross purposes with that. then.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and this is why it can be, you know, like, sometimes you get in, you know, Reconstructionist and polytheist traditions where they're like, you have to worship every single god. Well, you know, our ancestors didn't do that. <laughs> you know, then they may have acknowledged and honored, and, you know, at certain times they may have participated in, like, the civic stuff, but for the most part they had their family gods their household gods you know and, and some of their vocational gods and you know and then their personal gods and, and that's pretty much what they stuck to and, and they didn't concern themselves over much with the other gods unless there was some reason for them to you
2: No, know, it makes a lot of sense there's certain gods altars that my family doesn't touch Yeah, um, they, they just don't work with them it's not you know uh, I have altars to the warrior and military dead and the, the dead in general and my family just does not touch those altars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was doing yeah. work, yeah, when I was doing work as a as a funeral assistant, I had a suit that I would wear, and I would take it off, and I'd put it in the closet, and it was like, you don't touch this. Nobody touches this.
3: <laughs> so, yep, exactly. And like, because I am so closely identified with Dionysus, there are. Some deities in the Greek tradition and, you know, in other traditions that I have the utmost respect for, but I show that respect from as far away as possible because (laughs) if I get too close to their energy, I'm just, like, fucking miserable. You know, like, it it can be actually physically painful to be in their presence.
0: Hmm.
3: This is actually... Fine politics and stuff, you know
2: divine politics can you dig oh, into
3: yeah. that? not not all of our gods get along so <laughs> i don't want to be caught in the middle of something like that you know totally fair
1: well you know <laughs> it, it strikes me too that this is a important topic because um it it strikes it speaks to the fact that like i said our energies are not always compatible with everything and and there is, amongst polytheists, especially the new polytheists that are just beginning to have a level of guilt over not being able to connect with certain sort of deities, even though they mm-hmm. might really want to. And the situation in their life or their their energy in general, the uh, it just might not be compatible with what they want to do. Their path might lie a different way. And I think that's a, a really uh, important thing to say and it does tie into this conversation.
3: Mm-hmm. No, and see, this, I think, is where community comes in, because I may not be able to make offerings to Hera, for instance, Mm -hmm. but if I know someone who can, if there's some situation that comes up where I want to express gratitude to Hera, you know, I can ask that person to make offerings on my behalf, you know? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and that, I think that, that's becomes, a situation. that becomes supporting your community as well, because not only is that person, you're asking your person to make offerings to Hera for you, but you're going to no doubt include some reciprocity for that person, which builds that community even in, in a different way. You're building the community of people as well as the spiritual community all in one shot.
3: Uh, exactly, exactly. And I think that's really what we need. It's like so many of these religions that we're reconstructing today are fundamentally communal religions, or they have communal aspects in addition to the private individual aspects. And until we actually have those communities in place, you know, they're not going to be properly reconstructed.
2: So, like, what kinds of, of things can we as polytheists living in separate places across the internet from one another? What are some, some things that we can do to build better interconnected communities?
3: Um... I think there's a number of things that we can do Um, you know one we can correspond with each other we can you know support our various projects Um, we can make an effort to attend gatherings and retreats Um, we can make an effort to find people locally Um, I know this is probably going to sound crazy but I've done it four or five times now like you can actually move to a place where there are people you know I've moved cross country four or five times now. And unfortunately none of those communities has worked out in the long term, but you know, for a while it was really great. And
2: Yeah. We have a s- similar efforts underway here in uh, Michigan where our different communities will come together, not just to, uh, you know, things like Ann Arbor Pagan pride, but um, we have active community members in different places like uh there's a, a startup right now that's that's in the planning stages, so I won't talk too much in terms of details. But you know, they got about, you know, uh, they're just starting to organize, and so they're they're reaching out to people like myself, um, to other yeah. pagan religion organizations and things like that. Like, hey, you know, we've got all this this space. Why don't you guys think about coming in and, you know, we'll build a community center together. And so yeah. that's, that's been on my radar. That just popped up like last month. So that's really exciting.
3: Oh, that is exciting. And you're know, like something with that, you know, like a person can help out with that, even if they can't be present or, you know, directly involved with it, you know, you can send a couple bucks and, you know, that, that makes a difference. And sometimes even well beyond what those couple of dollars actually have a value for, like, if the person is really struggling and out of the blue they get this message, hey, you know, I like the work you're doing, you know, here's a couple bucks, like, man, that can lift you up out of uh, depression like nothing else. So, mm-hmm. everyone has something that they can contribute, no matter how small or great it is, and, and we're all needed in this venture, so.
2: Yeah, that's, that's something that I, I think sometimes gets lost. Like, a, there's a lot of of people who come on these shows and, and a lot of them tend to be spiritual specialists. I mean, i all three of us are, I think that one of the things we need to not lose is the importance of lay people. Cause they're basically the heart of the community. We're not serving anybody if they're not there.
3: Oh, oh my God. Sometimes lay people can do things I could never dream of. You know, like there's some lay people that are very talented craftsmen and, you know, like artists and, 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 like, they have practical skills that I will never have, no matter how much I work at it, you know. And so, like, their contribution is just as valuable as mine, you know, even though they can't go into ecstatic states and stuff. And, and I can, like, a snap my fingers. But, you know, we've all got different skill sets, and we all are needed in this work.
1: Well, it seems to me that there's synchronicities as well uh, 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 as us as people and how we overlap because, for example, I might be a specialist in my community when I'm dealing with the spirits that I deal with but that doesn't prevent me from being a lay person in some other per- community. So if I go to some other group's yes. community, I can be the guy that hands out the dishes and cleans up the table and does all that stuff. I don't have to be a specialist everywhere I go.
3: No, yeah, Exactly. and um, I've seen that so often. Like, Oh, you know all this stuff about this. So, how about this over here? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't I've ask me about polytheism,
1: right? <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> but yeah, no, I think everybody needs to help pitch in when it comes time to do the dishes and clean up. You know.
2: So, in in the ideal scenario. You know, let's scattershot maybe 20 years in the future. Where would you like to see polytheist communities at? Oh,
3: I don't know. Um, I am not very involved in the widest, wider polytheist community. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know I I know where I want my groups to be but I think that's very different from where most of these people want to be and especially with the politics coming in and being such a divisive force and taking up everyone's time and energy like I honestly have some real doubts about where politics is going to be in 20 years or so you know Hmm.
2: that's a fair point that's a fair point
3: I think the ones that will be most successful will be the ones that have sort of a tribal identity and, you know, aren't afraid of having boundaries and standards and stuff like that because there can be no real healthy growth without that stuff. And it's ironic that I say that because I'm a Dionysian and my whole thing is about transgressing norms, but if those norms don't exist... It's nothing for me to transgress against, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And then there's also the question of what's good for society or groups at large and what's good for me as an individual, and that may not always be the same thing. And in that case, you know, you've got to decide what's what's best for the majority. Mm -hmm. And I think some of these, you know, tribal senses are just the way that we're designed to be. And so the, the groups that are more in line with that will find more success than ones that try to be, you know, for instance, let everybody in and have no standards and, you know, mm-hmm. so
1: I, I agree with that. And entirely I
3: think the identitarian stuff.
1: Yeah, I really agree with that. I think the, the thing with tribalism is it is part of our ingrained human psyche because anybody that that says it's not, I bet you have a favorite team or club or superhero or something similar that mm-hmm. you root for. So the thing is, that, no, like
3: all you got to do is look at contemporary society and the yeah, absence exactly. of tribal structures. People will find anything to like. This is my side. This is your side. And now we're in conflict.
1: You right. Know? The part that I think the part that we've got to work on is how to understand uh, inter-tribal support. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Because I I think that there's a mistake to think that that tribalism means uh, complete exclusion or uh, uh, barriers and walls, and there's a difference between boundaries and barriers.
3: Yeah, well, that's a really good way to put that. Yeah, I mean, I
2: I I referenced this point a lot with uh, the Eägårth versus Utengarth. Unfortunately, a lot of of the more racist jackasses tend to put it as you know the white people are in the Ingarth, the everybody else is in the Uūgårth, right? Um, but the way that I understand it is like it's a yard, it's a it's a semi-permeable boundary. Mm. <laughs> I mean, fences helped keep the cattle in and helped mark where your territory was. It didn't keep everybody out, but It was, you know, not everybody needs to come to
3: your farm. No, no. And then, like, that's the thing with a lot of these. Like, you know, if this group wants to have these boundaries, you know, find a different group that has boundaries more consistent with your values. You know, like, don't sit there and, like, screech at them and, you know, protest their group and blah, blah, blah. Just find your own group and, and put your energy into making that group better. And,
1: so just because yeah, I think the mark, just because uh, uh, you know I, I'm not going to be able to stop you from your tribal thinking, but it doesn't mean my tribe's mm-hmm. got to trade with yours. Mm-hmm.
3: Nope.
1: That's how I would hear it, and, and I think
3: this stuff tends to sort itself out if left alone. You know.
1: Hmm. No, I think there's a. I mean, I I believe there's a point, and this is where it, the, the the dialogue becomes really important because I think it's important to call out people that are are racist or close-minded and, and say out loud that you don't agree with that and that, that you're creating that boundary, right? I don't think I'm ever going to be able to force my way into their psyche to change the way they're thinking. But I I do think it's clear that I can I can put up those signs that say, I don't agree with it. Yeah, no, of course, of course. And once again, I think that's where a lot of people don't understand. I mean, uh, I don't know, and it's a very fine line to 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 walk because the acknowledgement is also there. Like uh, with civil rights, for example, it always says that my rights end where your nose begins. But you know, and so there is something about that where if there is a a group that is it is purposely attacking another one, I think we have to stand up and unite. But that doesn't mean I'm going out and looking for fights either. It's, it's a very complex sort of dance that we have to have to do. And we can only do that as individual tribes or individual people within our tribes. If that, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense.
3: Yeah. And like, I just don't concern myself with what other people are doing. Like, unless I have some reason to interact with them, you know, like, if, if this group of, you know, like, there was a recent thing on, on Wild Hunt about this uh, female-only group that didn't allow trans people in, and, you know, like, I, I don't care about that, you know? Like, I, I would never be part of that group in any way, and, you know, I don't know why a trans person would want to be part of that group. It sounds like those are a bunch of jerks, you know? Go find a more inclusive group that doesn't care what your genitalia are you know <clears throat> none of these groups have like the a monopoly on resources and anything else you know like there's nothing that they're doing that you can't do yourself yep I
2: think to a certain so degree of wasting
3: your time tearing them apart you know build your own community find your own in-group and, you know, support them.
2: So something I've been thinking about, and I, I kind of want to put this question to you, is politics possibly being a miasmic force, at least pol- modern politics, I should say, Yeah, being a miasmic force in groups. Because um, one of the things that I had to do when I was forming the Kindred and when we were forming the Kindred together was <clears throat> Okay, look, we all have different political views and philosophies, but our religious community and our, our kindred—I mean, we we operate as a family group. You know, you're not going to agree with Uncle Bob on every little thing, but as long as he's not being an out-and-out asshole at the table, you know, you can get along. And so, to certain degrees, there's like a point at which we're like, okay, this is where the politics exits the building, and we can bring it back when we we're not in sacred space. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and, you know, like, that is sort of my ideal. I haven't actually found that to be a very successful policy. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, and, and like, this ultimately led to my leaving a group that I founded recently. Because I tried to make it a completely politics free environment, and you know I really emphasize we are here for the gods our primary identities while we are here is as you know devotees of these gods you know leave all the politics at the door and that didn't work because it was a constant fight with these people who wanted to inject their politics into every single thing and you know we
1: not can I ask, touching on something that you mentioned earlier, is it too much to expect that humans are politics-free when the gods aren't?
3: No, that's true. And and, and for the ancient Greeks, politics wasn't a miasmic thing. It was a sacred thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, Democratia was a goddess of democracy. and And, like, voting was very much... You know, and, and, like, the gods themselves had a council and voted and, you know, they, they tried um, Ares when he uh, killed his daughter's rapist. You know, so, like, they were involved in politics. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. <clears throat> I think this may actually be, you know, one of the real challenges that we're facing because everything in our society right now is so divisive. And mm-hmm. so, you know, like, you're not allowed not to have an opinion on
1: everything, you know. Well, and... I think a lot of that's fueled by by uh, things like social media and that sort of thing. But, I mean, oh, even yeah. even a, a, apart from that, I think no, we have I, to become... it never really
3: happens to be a problem when I'm dealing with people one-on-one exactly. or in small groups. Exactly. And it's always through the internet. <clears> hmm.
1: <throat> Well, if I'm having a face-to-face discussion with somebody and I can tell we really disagree, I can tell from their body language, from their voice, I can tell when I need to step back and re-examine my views or that there's no yeah, compromise exactly. to be made so we could take the conversation in a different direction. Online, people aren't willing to have that, that give. They're not always willing to back down.
3: Yeah. And, you know, like that's the thing that really gets me is all these people recognize what a corrosive force the internet and social media and stuff is for them. And yet they're not willing to remove themselves from,
1: it. and mm-hmm. I don't know that we're
3: really going to get anywhere until people are willing to do that. And yeah. just focus on their local communities, you know,
2: it's kind of a catch 22. Cause on the one hand, social media has, brought a lot of communities that I would not have otherwise interacted with together. I wouldn't have Mm -hmm. found uh, you or Galena had it not been for, for, well, you know, if you wanted to look at blogs as a form of social media, you can debate on that, but I wouldn't have found you guys had those not been up. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's so much stratification that goes with, you know, you fit in this box or that box, and there's no nuance, because if you're out of that box, suddenly you're a traitor to the cause.
3: Yeah. No, and that's the thing. Like, I think the Internet is a tool, and that tool can be used properly or it can be used improperly. And unfortunately, the nature of the tool is such that it tends to emphasize the worst aspects of our personalities. You know, and I don't think there's a problem with someone who just spends, you know, a couple hours online. There are people who spend, like, their entire lives... You know, 14, 16 hours a day online, and those people are really unhealthy. Let's say.
1: <laughs> well, and you I don't... mean, I, I can I can find myself guilty too. Of the we have outlets sometimes for our best behavior and our worst behavior, and there's mm-hmm. times when I'm feeling really generous, and I'll go online and I'll be trying to find somebody's day to make, and there's other days where. My day's been bad, and so I have to be very careful that I'm not trying to make someone else's day bad, you know? So we all oh, are susceptible totally. successful to our human nature sometimes.
3: No, and then, like, you get in the middle of something, and suddenly it seems like the most important thing ever, and you're, like, right. yelling at people, and you get that adrenaline rush, and,
1: you know... There's a lot of times I delete my own posts. I might put it up for a few minutes, the first couple uh, comments roll in, and I'm like, you know do I want to be responsible for this energy out there? And and I'll just take the whole post down, whether they're agreeing with me or not. Sometimes it's just the nature of the comments and where it's going. And it's like, I don't need to uh, push on somebody like that or anyone or a group or whatever. And so I just, it's easier to delete the post. I I find that sometimes, you know, you have to have to be gracious like that and back out of a fight. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, no, I think that's the thing. Like it's all about responsible use. And, No one can tell you what is the right amount for you. You have to make that decision yourself, and and that decision may change day to day depending on what's going on with you, but, you know, I think we have to be much more responsible with it than our tendencies are. So
2: something I'm hearing um, in the way that you both have talked, and the way that I've heard social media talked about is is in a lot of warlike fighting terms and a lot of expressive... Of uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna get the other side or we're gonna you know this is a fight we uh, mm-hmm. what, what what we're doing is we're exchanging bits of information over a, a platform
3: <laughs> really I mean yeah. we're not
2: we're not throwing spears at each other here
3: um I know and I hate when they like appropriate the terminology of like warriors and stuff <laughs> you no know, you're just someone who's typing a bunch of angry things online you're not a warrior you know
2: <laughs> yeah no I I, I think the keyboard jockey and keyboard warrior are funny terms because you know unless you're actually going out and doing something with the stuff you're posting about you're actually not contributing anything but air Mm -hmm. and i I think that um you know a lot of this 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 warlike anger aggressive behavior i think is a lot of on the one hand it's it's quite miasmic because I'll, I'll occasionally i'll be like oh i gotta say something on this you know and i'll get in that aggressive mindset and it's like you no know, you know you could just not be a dick
3: yeah Go no and i think, and do something it, I think else it's useful. even more than miasmic like i think there are actually spirits out there that you know travel through the internet and they you know draw people into these conflicts and then they feed off of that negative energy
1: that's produced. Oh, I'm, I'm completely convinced of it. I, I've often referred to, I don't know if you might have heard one of the other broadcasts or one of my other things anywhere, but I refer to it as uh, quote-unquote dark ley lines. There are definitely lines of force that are heavier energy and and people get sucked into them and when they, when they live out of their more heavy burdensome emotions it reinforces those lines just like it would lines of 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 lighter or more refined energy i i've definitely seen it and there's entities that travel along those lines just like there's entities that would travel along the the lighter and more refined lines
3: yeah and like you know from an animist perspective you know like if plants and rocks and everything has a spirit then why wouldn't the structures of the internet have Uh spirits too Oh God. Or I'm even, kidding. like, if our intelligences, our minds are constantly focused on this thing that's, you know, going to draw stuff. Yeah, so <laughs> this, is,
2: this is funny because as much as I've, I've griped about pop culture pagans, I, I'm going to indulge in a little bit here. So something that I ran into a long time ago when I was just starting to explore paganism was uh, the World of Darkness role-playing systems. And uh, especially werewolf, the apocalypse
0: mm-hmm. in it,
2: they've got the great triad of the weaver, the weird, or I'm sorry, the, the weaver, the wild, and um, uh, I believe Luna. Um, weaver, wild, and worm. I'm sorry. There we go. And so I'm just like, I'm hearing echoes of like, you know, the, the, the weaver um, you know, being all involved in the technology and the construction of all these these specific lines of energy that they are very, connecting and all that but they're also she gathers her power up through these lines and and things have to be neat and tidy or they're wrong whereas the wild is what it sounds like it's the Mm. it's boundless power and energy and then you've got the worm which is corrupted (laughs) and it's like huh okay (laughs) i'm sitting here listening to this conversation just like okay my mind's kind of wandering toward you know and i don't think it's like a like a real more immediate thing in terms of like my religion but it's like i go back and i think about these archetypal patterns that i'm seeing right. play out oh okay that kind of makes
3: oh, sense oh totally i mean like in traditional polytheist systems you know like you've got your poets and your artists and you know all of these people who are receiving messages from the gods and and making the art that transmits that like that didn't suddenly stop just because you know, our culture changed, like, I I think some of these um, people are really tapping into some real stuff, and, and, you know, and I think there's spirits, especially sort of like some of the bottom feeder spirits that uh, will change their form in order to be more receptive to people, and, you know, so, like, I, I don't have a problem with pop culture, paganism, aside from the fact that I think a lot of them don't have a very solid grounding and don't right. draw the necessary distinctions. Like when all of that blew up, you know, like my whole thing was, you know, like Spider-Man is fundamentally different from Achilles. Like I, I wasn't saying that Spider-Man can't be a independent entity or, you know, like there's no point in reverencing him or, you know, any of that stuff. I was just saying he's fundamentally different from mm-hmm. someone who started off as a human. You
0: know. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And and somehow that blew up and you know.
1: <laughs> it is yeah, I, it is amazing how art captures stuff sometimes. I I agree with that, you know, and, and Sarah's backing off of what you just said there, I had a great conversation with an Oba the other day who was talking about uh when we were he was trying to define different spiritual roles and i gave the analogy of the different types of magic users and, and clerics and such in dungeons and dragons and he said it's remarkably accurate in some ways it's kind of fascinating how art you know it's it's the oldest thing that we've talked about how stories draw out the mythology mm-hmm. as much as anything
3: yeah, and a lot of people that are really into that are, are total nerds. And so they're going to be like doing all of this research and do, like <laughs> exactly. authentic, traditional stuff, and they're going to be incorporating this and that. And, you know, so yeah, there's authentic stuff. Yeah.
2: yeah I, <laughs> I I think that a lot of the, the derm and strong of the pop culture paganism got lost in a lot of the nuances a lot of us are trying to bring to the conversation. It's like, it's not that you can't do this. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I think the Sons of Batman can worship Batman. I'm just like, the, the question that kept coming up in my mind was, okay, I love Batman as a character. Which one are you worshiping? <laughs> is this the yeah. universe 52? Is this the old 1940s <laughs> Batman? I mean, you know, is this the Batman I mean, I who
3: kills? With Spider-Man, like, they completely... Oh, my God, ret you know, retract or retconned his marriage of like twenty years and suddenly that didn't happen. for a while he had these cool shamanic powers and then when the next Raider came along, oh no, none of that happened. So,
2: that was so fucking cool. I was so irritated they got rid of that.
3: <laughs> yeah. So like that is uh Yeah, that's something you need to factor in when you're dealing with these spirits, is because they don't have the sort of freedom that um, a different spirit would have, because they're so dependent on the creative process. Mm. Mm
2: -hmm. So, I've um, some of some of the circles I travel in, we talk about mythic time, uh, and I know that you and I and Gleen have talked about mythic time, kind of like being these snapshots of gods at different times.
3: Mm.
2: And so, I kind of, uh, if we're looking at pop culture spirits in this fashion. You know, mythic time for might be, you know, the Golden Age run of this character or, you know, the New 52 run of this character might be their kinds yeah. of mythic time. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, me from a couple years ago would be like, why are you, why? <laughs> but, you know. This is, and,
3: this... and honestly, like, I do the same thing with Dionysus because I'm interested in the fact that, you know, from, like, 1500 BCE to the present, there has not been a decade where people haven't been making art about him, you know, mm-hmm. poetry, mm-hmm. all of this. And obviously, you know, once you get past the, you know, the fall of Rome and stuff, that that art changes and the conception of him changes. And so, you know, especially within a highly Christianized society, you know. <clears throat> so you got to factor that in. And, but I'm still interested in all of these different expressions of Dionysus
2: yeah, your work with the uh, the Tantalus was um, for me. It was like, oh wow, my my Catholic heritage kind of went perked up and went, huh?
3: Yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing. Like, you know, a lot of these Christian saints are masks for our gods, and yeah, and like that just brings in a whole host of questions with that.
2: Oh man. So there was this uh, conference I attended a while ago. It was the Young Michigan's Farmer Conference. And it was being held in a Jesuit church. Or at least the church was being headed by a Jesuit minister. And he was this native guy who's an uh, amazing man. Um, and the father was talking with me at length because he asked about my my, uh, my bulk nut. Um, and so we sat down and he said huh, you know, we got a saint over there that looks, you know, kind of reminds me of him. I said, "Oh, really?" He says, "Yeah, that saint over there. He's got two ravens, and his name's Saint Benjamin." I went, "You're shitting me!" <laughs> yep. He laughed his ass off. I said, "Oh, come on now. You know, you you know we've we've hidden a lot of our stuff in their their religion too." And he kind of waked at me. I was like, mm-hmm. "Huh." And so this, this Jesuit priest and I had a really great conversation about syncretism and, and Christianity and Catholicism. Nice, yeah. So it just kind of, like you said, masks.
3: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my biggest problem with, you know, Catholics is that they can't count past three.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> one. one plus one plus one is not equal one. You know.
1: <clears throat> well, okay. If,
3: if we could just get them past that, I I think they could function in a polytheist society just fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's your frustration with the Catholics, but that actually leads me to a question I've been wanting to ask. So as a Dionysian, what is your biggest frustration with that, how people perceive your path or things that you've run across or how people perceive you as a Dionysian? How, What, what kind of drives you a little crazy about that? Um, I mean, like, do people not, just assume I that just, you're, you're just know, a like, constant party animal and— and that drives you a little, I mean, because I I feel like we all have frustration sometimes on our path or how it's perceived.
3: Mm. Yeah, you know, um, I certainly don't like when people only see the party animal aspect of him. But on the other hand, I think about how restrained and fucked up our society is, and if so, if (laughs) someone is getting a sense of liberation from that. And broken out of this sort of monotonous shell that, you know, especially like the corporate environment creates, you know, more power to them. Um, I think the, with the gods, what you get out of it, what you put into it. And so if you're only willing to go to that superficial level, you know, that's all you're going to get. And, I guess one thing that kind of bothers me is the – and this is actually something that more of, like, our people do than outsiders, but they, they tend to conflate any involvement with Dionysus. And and so, like, if a – and there was this big controversy that happened in my group before I left where um, – um, oh, God, Will Smith – his kid did this art thing where she represented herself as a ad hmm. and you know, and then like people were treating it like she was suddenly a devotee of Dionysus. Now I don't know if she is or isn't. I'm not going to make that judgment, but you know, making art about a god isn't the same as offering worship to that god. You know, and so I, I think that that distinction should be made, and and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and that has fed our tradition, and you know, Dionysus is the god of art, and he has used that to reach out. And, you know, so like, I certainly have no nothing against that, but at the same time, someone who you know just makes a piece of art about Dionysus isn't the same as someone who has worshipped him, gone through his mysteries, and all of this. And, and so, people weren't making that distinction and, and were getting upset because I was making.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: you know so I suppose if there's anything that irritates me right now it's that because the party god thing doesn't bother me as much anymore I think at times it has in the past but I, I consider our society so degenerate so that any way <laughs> to connect with gods is a good thing
2: <clears throat> yeah I um you know Wagner helped bring a very romanticized Odin to the masses, and kind of oh, helped totally. kickstart, yeah. you know, the the heathen Revolution back when. Would I say that Wagner is a is a Odin worshiper? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> yep, he changed stuff to fit his narrative, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and that's what artists do. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I think it was V for Vendetta that uh, one of the characters said, uh, "My father used to tell." Um, she says art is a way to, to lie to tell the truth or something to that effect Yeah, and I, and I, I think that um, a lot of art has historically been used as a way to bring us closer to the gods you know I mean for heaven's sakes look at renaissance paintings
3: oh yeah um, no, and, and sometimes at those times there would have been no way for those people to actually engage in cultists And so all that they could do was put that energy into art, and that kept those gods alive in the consciousness of, you know, our people for during those dark, oppressive times. So I I have nothing against them for doing that. I don't always agree with their vision of the gods, as the case with Wagner, but, you know, I'm not going to take away from his accomplishments, and all respect to him for that.
2: That actually, I, for some reason, plays come to mind now um, in general. So for you, is, is viewing certain movies and viewing certain media or listening to it a form of devo, de, de, hmm, devotion uh, to Dionysus and his retinue?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, though I do draw a distinction between watching movies and going to plays. Absolutely. Um, I think both can be Dionysian activities, but... Hmm. There's so much more happening at a play because, you know, like the no play is ever done the same way twice. There's always, you know, shifts in the, you know, in the performers and you know this and that, and, and then there's the energy of the audience and you know there's there's all the stuff going on that isn't replicated when you're watching a movie in your living room. You know, and especially because when you watch that movie, it's always the same over and over again. You may discover new things in it that you didn't notice the last time, but fundamentally, you're seeing the same thing again and again. And that's very different from going to play. Yeah.
2: Having acted throughout my high school years
3: and, and wanting to get in
2: community theater now, um, we did Antigone in oh, yeah. first year. And the, the, the way that our director did it was we did a ritual to Bacchus starting the play oh nice nice hmm. and so we'd uh, the chorus actually did most of the lines for it um, during the play we had a, a person who came in and was the personified Zeus and he was this tall he was gorgeous he was a tall black man with a thunderbolt in his hand it was awesome we also had uh, Dionysus, I think, at some point come in, and it was just this ethereal quality to theater. Whether you're you're sitting in the audience, or you're you're in the play. Um, you know, when you're when you're a chorus member and you're saying something with one voice, and you're a, you're a singular cacophony, and you're linked in, and you're mm-hmm. all doing the motions, and you're all doing the it, it. It's a it's a bridge different from watching somebody do a production of it on
3: TV. Yeah, and like sometimes when uh, you know an actor is performing, it's really like they're possessed—either possessed by the character or the god speaking through them, or you know sometimes both. And and they don't always hit that note, but when they do, oh, you know, your skin, the hair stands up on your arms, and you know it's Mm -hmm. a powerful thing. And that's why I encourage people to see plays at least you know once in their life so you have that experience
2: there's nothing quite like Agamemnon running through your skin during a production of (laughs) women yep we we did that the director to make the the content more relatable to the audience we went with the Rwanda genocide as a kind of a backdrop and so the, the Trojan horse opens up in the beginning of the play and it's barbed wire fence along the back of it because we actually made a moving set with the Trojan horse Oh, Except wow. it was all—it was all painted gray. So this big bastard comes out, and opens up, and it's—it's it's a barbed wire fence. And it looks like a concentration camp. And I come out of it with the the troops, and I've got this black mask on, and you know how masks are. Oh yeah. As, I mean, the, I didn't feel it really up until we started actually doing dress rehearsal, and then I put the mask on because I've had this this junta mask on, right? And I've got these two butterfly swords, and then it was like, oh hey. <laughs> We're in
0: this
2: now. <laughs> so um, yeah. I mean just this, the application of, of theater and masks and the, the, the power of theater is is a is a bridge different than um than movies. And I think sometimes you get some of that, especially when, when some of these guys go really deep into a character. I, I Oh yeah. I think of uh of um oh God bless it, what's his name? Heath Ledger. Or um, Christian Beryl on the other side of it. Or, uh, oh, Lord, was it Adrian Brody who did The Piatist? Yeah, lot yeah, these, I think so. A lot of these actors who do really powerful work in inhabiting a character. hmm I think to a certain degree kind of reflect some of that, but I think there's, again, there's that distance of the camera.
3: Yeah. and And there's also the fact that they can do multiple takes and get, like, the best actually put on film i mean it's a different it's a different genre and it takes different qualities and and i think they're both amazing and very dionysian and but there is differences between them
2: is there any media that you'd recommend for people to connect with dionysus his retinue and the various gods
3: oh i'd say pretty much all media you know, he's very much the god of media, and, and so like you know, listening to music and um, you know, watching movies, and, and sometimes you know, watching movies with the sound off but of playing music like that can be a really powerful trance thing. And mm-hmm. you know, you got to use what you have, and you know, and like going out to concerts and going out to theater, and you know. Sometimes even, like, just wearing masks. Either just wearing masks at home while doing stuff, or, or going out in the streets wearing masks. That Like, that can be a really powerful thing.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it uh, reminds me of the, uh, some of the, the work we did uh, for Many Gods West a couple of years ago. And, uh,
3: where the spirits wear you as a mask. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> No, and it's so great. Like I've done some like nighttime processions through the city and stuff, you know, with a bunch of people wearing masks, and you know, it's it's an amazing thing, especially watching the just random people on the street how they interact with this group of masked people, and you know.
2: yeah. So, I don't know when we talked about it, but at one point you were talking about uh, Krampus knocked being one of those things that modern society still finds acceptable and is Mm -hmm. really is really coming back into vogue so I found out that Ypsilanti has a Krampus knocked
3: thing oh that's awesome yeah Yeah, I've done it I've done a couple I've done a Perkta knocked and a Krampus Knocked and they were both amazing went up to uh Portland for the Krampus one and it was funny because it was all you know a bunch of hipsters and stuff and I was really dubious at first, because you know, like they were all talking and stuff. there was no like sense of reverence for what they were doing, but the second all those masks went on energy completely changed, and like it didn't matter that they didn't understand what they were doing. The ritual understood what was happening
2: uh, oh yeah we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do this Jim
3: <laughs> yeah, so if you got one near, you definitely go. <clears throat> Yeah, because I
2: found out about it, I think, last year, and so I'm going to have to see if Ipsy is doing it again. Because uh, uh, I mean, they do a processional. Last time I read about it, there was a blog post about it on some Ypsilanti person's blog where they talked about there was a, basically this big processional that went all the way through the town, and these people were dressed up in these fur suits. Um, some had um, like pelts and stuff. So it looked like like a mixed procession of the wild men from Germany. Yeah, and 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 Krampus knocked. It was great. So, and I when... love
3: how every region in you know Germany and uh, France and Italy and you know all those Alpine stuff, like every region has its own specific costumes and its own specific traditions, and, and like you go across the valley and, and they've got a, a totally different thing. But you know, it's all tapping into this you know dark part of the year and return of the light energy and it's, it's just so amazing.
2: Yeah I think if there's any any big universals in a lot of polytheist traditions it's it's the the
3: big seasonal cycles. I mean even you know
0: oh, summer yeah. and
3: winter. Yeah. You know mumming and dancing and singing and like everybody does this across cultures, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think
2: of uh, your work with Dionysus. I think that's one, one of the places where the big mask work comes in. I mean, we had a big mask festival coming up in, like, a month. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And I think it's interesting how even, even our supposedly secular, although I'd argue mostly Protestant Christian-influenced uh, society, how these peaks of paganism creep through and suddenly everything becomes acceptable and kind of subsumed for a little while
3: Mm -hmm. yeah and that's one of the things that really kind of has me flabbergasted like there's so many great traditions like this in german and french and you know all of that stuff that the you know the assatuary people aren't tapping into and you know modern heathen people aren't tapping into and it's like these are the best expressions of the religion. Why are you ignoring those for, you know, just standing around and pouring out a libation, you know? <clears throat> Nothing wrong with pouring out a libation. That's wonderful, but like, fucking dance, and go on processions, and you know, do this other cool stuff that is in the sources.
1: I've actually thought for a while that that's, uh, that is actually the kind of activity that's missing from a lot of the uh, pagan festivals is that You know, they'll have a a main ritual, but let's face it, the ritual has become sort of uh, repetitive after a while, but we don't have a lot of just uh, dancing time or processionals or a play or something along those lines. I think those would be kind of interesting things that we should be doing more of.
3: Especially when you have a group of people like that. There's a real energy that gets produced that you can't do when you've just got one or two people, you know and that is exactly the time when it should be done and and instead they just like have those people stand around while a couple religious leaders do you know a few little ritual actions and then boom it's done and it's like oh, it wasn't even a, you know a ceremony what are you talking about
2: mm-hmm. yeah
3: and i I think that's
2: where a lot of, of modern ritual workers are going to have to really think about how we how we involve the audience I mean in, in housed bloat, You know, a lot of it was a lot of people standing around until it was their turn to do something. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the one of the modern challenges is, okay. well, how do we get people more involved in ritual to where it's not just a passive exercise? It's an active thing. One of the things we one of the things we did was we had people, you know, hey, these are the guys we're worshiping. This is who they are. Here's some bread. Here's some herbs. Come up, pray. Think about what you've done for the last year for harvest Mm -hmm. and -hmm. take that with you. Do something
1: with it, you know? Well, I, um, I, I think a lot of times, like even when we're talking about the the modern uh, shamanic or neo-shamanic traditions, uh, something I've run across, and that I have to remind myself of sometimes, is that the uh, sense of theater and grandeur is okay because the, the ancient tribesmen, they would not have shied away from that. You are... Overwhelming people not only on the spiritual level but on a mental level, you are forcing them into an altered state one way or another. Exactly, and we, we've been so concerned with trying to be seen as being serious that sometimes we've given up that sense of grand theater.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, for me, that is worship, that is serious,
1: <laughs> right? Exactly. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah,
2: So, I mean, like, one of the things I do, at least for the Pagan Festivals, uh, especially Michigan Pagan Fest, is I will wear my my wolf through the whole thing. And people will occasionally stop and go, well, what's this all about? Well, this is one of my spirits. This is my spirit. <laughs> so, you know, you get the privilege of experiencing my spirit. Um. And people kind of, like, I've seen a, a number of responses. Some of it just comes down to, can I pet the wolf?
3: Uh, some of it comes down,
2: <laughs> which is, you know, fine. Okay, so I've introduced you to wolf. Good job. Um, and some of oh, it is...
3: the wolf can pet back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you should right. see how he terrorizes some people's dogs just by standing there, Sanyan. It is just not. Oh, some of these dogs off. do not quite understand, or maybe they do. <laughs> they are quite uh, skittish.
2: I, um, it's it's a, it's a it's a bridge difference when you put on a mask and you wear it for an entire weekend, and so oh, I th- yeah. I think that this is one aspect of the, the Dionysian Odin work that that needs to come more into the fore for a lot of folks because mm-hmm. I um I think back to a psych class I took once and they were talking about you know Apollonian and Dionysian being these two broad categories that psychological psych- psychologists used for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think we've gotten so Apollonian, I mean, no disrespect to him, Yeah, uh, we've gotten so Apollonian that the stick is so far up our ass that it's using our head as a puppet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe it's time to dislodge that and put on an IV mask and get crazy for a while.
3: I'm very much behind that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So, is there anything um, that our our listeners should know that's coming out from you? That um, any books that you'd like to talk about or that you're working on?
3: Um, I got a couple ideas going around. I don't know which will actually manifest. So, yeah, I was, I was working on a poetry book, and that just kind of collapsed, and so I'm going back to scratch.
2: I hear you. <laughs> Uh, I've been working on a, a a book for the last four years and it's kind of stalled, which is ironic considering it's about fallow times and polytheist worship. Oh, that's <laughs> a really
3: important book. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Oh, shit. Sure. Something yeah. a lot of folks need to hear. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Crap. Uh, all right, then. <laughs> should probably put out when are you going to
1: learn to stop saying things like that out loud?
2: I mean, I, I, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I keep joking with him about uh, the Starry Wolf thing. So, you know, maybe I'll, I'll eventually learn to shut my mouth. <laughs> totally. So I really I really want to um, I feel like uh, this is we're about wrapping up. So I really wanted to thank you, Sanian, for for taking time out of your your busy schedule and your busy
3: week.
1: Oh, to Oh, no, with this. this is wonderful. Yeah, thank you. We've so got much. some
3: really good uh, discussions going here. And I would yeah. love to have you back.
1: Yeah, yeah Any anytime you yeah. feel the need to talk and, and get your voice out there, as opposed to the, the written word that you're so skilled at, uh, give us a shout. We'll have you back on.
3: Oh, I'd love that, yeah. And if I get any projects that I want public attention for, I'll, I'll definitely hit you guys up. Or I just got something to, to say. <laughs> Thank Thank you, I love bro. that you guys are doing this. You know, this is really important.
1: Oh thank, thank you. you yeah we're just uh, you know this is this is really I, I'm, I don't know if serenth feels the same way, but I do I feel like this is um, one of the things that spirit can tell compels me to to do because uh, other people's strength is the written word where mine has always been my voice and and uh, talking with people and I, I just yeah I feel like this is what spirit wants us to do to, mm-hmm. to get these conversations going.
3: No, and it's so important to get people just coming together and talking, talking, you know. Absolutely, and I, I'm, I'm. That's the other side of it is listening, and
2: yeah, I mean, you know, getting around to fi- the the digital fire here, you know. Yeah. We get to explore concepts that you know, you know, otherwise would get left by the wayside because it's it's too long of a word count. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So I oh, really that is so it. annoying.
2: Yeah, especially when you work. Oh, out
3: you know that's that's too much to read. I'm just going to skip it. <laughs> but I'm not going to restrain myself from you know commenting a whole bunch, even though I haven't read the article, and I'm going I... to bring up all the points you already discussed in the article.
1: I, I read the headline. That's surely enough. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So I really appreciate the time you've spent with us. and oh, thank uh, you thank you for having me. So thank you so much. and, and I uh, thank you to all of our listeners. If you want to uh, suggest topics to us or for Sandy to explore when he comes back on the show, I'm at sarinth at gmail dot com. My blog is sarinth wordpress dot com. You can also send me messages at, at sarinth on Twitter.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm on Twitter at James at the Owl, or you can send me an email at jim at thewanderingowl.com. dot com, and and of course always the although we're uh, publishing through many feeds with this podcast, that Anchor app allows you to leave a voice email, a voice message that we can incorporate into future shows, and we can hear your questions that way as well. We can hear your voice. So, yes, thank you, Sandy, for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. Awesome,
3: and that's really important. Is you know giving people a voice especially you know the way things are going in our various communities you know the average person is not getting heard and and they have good ideas
1: right Agreed. agreed absolutely all right well thank you folks and uh we will talk to you on the next show
2: all right you have a good one you too blessings to you